We'll get into the show in a moment, but first, I've got Molly Browning joining me. Molly is the East Coast Technical Sales Manager for Lalaman Brewing, which is a sponsor of the program. And today, we're talking about Lalaman's wild yeast and sour beer offerings. I start by asking Molly to describe Lalaman's portfolio. So we have four strains that can be used to make a variety of sour beers. Um, two are bacteria, lactobacillus bacteria, and two are strains of yeast that produce lactic acid. So for the bacteria, these are more suited for kettle souring or if you were looking to do like a fermentation, um, a bacterial fermentation in the fermenter. And what can you tell me about Lalaman's sour yeast strains? Our sour yeast strains, we have one that is a genetically modified strain that is only sold in the U.S. right now called Sour VCA, uh, and that produces a lot of lactic acid. It is a very clean fermenter, and yeah, you just pitch it into your fermenter and away it goes, and it'll create alcohol and lactic acid and CO2 and all those wonderful things. So for both Sour VCA and for Philly Sour, you can add them as you would any normal yeast to your fermenter, and they will ferment the sugar that's in the wort and create ethanol, CO2, and lactic acid. So you basically are eliminating the kettle souring step or the souring step that you would see through bacteria. We're excited to have Lalaman Brewing as a sponsor of the Beer Edge podcast, and Molly Browning will be joining us again at the bottom of the program. But in the meantime, I'd invite folks to check out Lalaman's website at lalamanbrewing.com for more information on how it can help your business. That's Lalaman, L-A-L-L-E-M-A-N-D, brewing.com. Parenting isn't easy, and trying to manage young kids especially during a pandemic, is incredibly hard. I don't talk about my personal life much on these podcasts, in my work, or on social media. I prefer to keep some separation. But I also know that there's value in letting others, who may be similarly situated, know that things are rarely the well-constructed perfection reflected in smiling family Instagram photos. And that's how I first noticed today's guest, beer writer Owen Walsh. A native of Ireland, Owen now lives with his family in Brussels, working as a freelance writer, author, and podcaster. He's the founder of Brussels Beer City, a blog about the Belgian capital city's beers, bars, and brewing traditions. He's also the host of the Brussels Beer City podcast, and he's racked up a number of impressive awards with his work, including being named the British Guild of Beer Writers Young Beer Writer of 2018. But it is his occasional social media posts talking about the challenges of parenting his two young kids that made me feel more seen, He's as happy to discuss the struggles as a father as he is to celebrate the successes, however big or small. And I definitely connect with that. As the father of two young kids, I'm very familiar with the ups and downs, the good and the bad, and how you can feel pulled in a million different directions, torn between the personal and the professional, all while feeling like you're not doing well at either. Especially during times when we've been forced inside or away from others for so long. Owen's Twitter posts about his adventures in parenting have helped me appreciate that others are trying to navigate the same issues and finding it exhausting all the while. So earlier this week, Owen put his kids to bed, climbed into his chilly attic, and joined me on an international Zoom call to chat. We talk a lot about parenting, the challenges you face as a freelancer with kids, and how easy it is to lose your identity after becoming a parent. A natural storyteller, affable and self-effacing, Owen also discusses his beer writing career, how he came to live in Brussels, whether Belgium's grand beer traditions can survive hazy IPAs and the march of modernity, and whether Yvonne DeBates is the most important person in the Belgian beer scene. Owen also uses the show to announce some news, but I'll let him talk about that. Here's my conversation 
with beer writer, author, and podcaster, Owen Walsh. So, Owen, I know that you're originally from Ireland and have lived in several countries throughout Europe. This is what I've heard on other podcasts. But how did you end up settling down in Belgium? Um, well, my wife is Belgian. Um, well, she wasn't my wife when I met her, obviously. Uh, but my wife, Laura, she's from Leuven, so 30 kilometers east of Brussels, home to, you know, the world's largest brewery. Um, we met uh, while we were both studying abroad in the Czech Republic way back now in 2006. And, uh, you know, history took its course. And in 2009, uh, I finished university. She finished university. We both moved here to Brussels. Um, and I've been living here ever since. What were your first impressions of the city? Um, it's funny. Brussels is the biggest city I've ever lived in, which <clears throat> if anyone has ever been to Brussels, it's not very big. <laughs> um, but I come from a small town in Ireland of, uh, it was probably about 12,000 people. And the nearest big city would have been Cork. So in the south of Ireland, and that's a very small city, you're talking maybe 100,000. So for me, Brussels was big. You mm-hmm. know? It was uh, it was different. I didn't know anybody when I got here. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I just finished studying. Um, I did a master's in European studies and Brussels was the obvious place to come after that because that's where all of the European institutions mm-hmm. are. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have a job. Um, I didn't have a plan. We, we rented a small studio in, uh, in Skarbik, which is in, which is sort of a working class uh, neighborhood in the city. Um, but it was an interesting time. We didn't really have a lot of money back then. I mean, I'm, it sounds like a like I'm like a, <laughs> sitting in my sitting in my in my attic attic room with no heating on, you know, covered uh, covered in, my, in a blanket or a shawl of but, or sweater <laughs> in my little garret. But it was a little bit like that. We didn't have a lot of money at the time, and we were very young. We were in our early twenties. Um, the city was really interesting. Just going out and exploring like a totally different vibe to any place that I'd ever visited before. Um, obviously, being Irish. Up until very recently, Ireland was quite a homogenous, monocultural place. Mm-hmm. Brussels and Skarbek and, and and the neighbor where we lived in was massively. I mean, like right. you couldn't have you couldn't have a, a, a more different place to live. I mean, like there's 120 pop, 120 um, different nationalities live in the city. Um, and we lived across the road from a Bosnian restaurant, and up the street was a was a Portuguese place. There were Turkish shops everywhere. It was a real yeah, it was it was it was a really different experience to come and come, come and live here, but it was really exciting. And eventually, like we settled in, and I got used to the place. I found my routines. But um, it, Brussels is a very confusing place. It's quite chaotic. I mean, Andy, I know mm-hmm. you said you've been there. Anyone else who's ever visited, you know, it's not your classic Central European right. ordered Germanic place. It is it is very much a sort of chaotic mess of different cultures, Flemish. Uh, francophone you know a lot of west a lot of african a lot of uh, north african you know it's just this big mess and trying to get i mean i'm still i mean part of the reason one of the reasons why i set up the blog was in order to try and find a way into to, to understanding it and you know what were you five years on i'm still not really sure that that's true <laughs> so the blog you're referencing is obviously brussels beer city which has been quite celebrated you've done well for yourself quite a few awards but you know, besides trying to just sort of get your footing in a new city, you know, what was what was the idea behind the project? Why did you end up starting that blog? Um, well, Brussels Beer City, I think, was blog number three. No, oh. uh, the, the, <laughs> yes, exactly. That's right. Uh, story of uh, uh, an overnight success, four or five years in the making. <laughs> um, I tried and failed to do blogs before. Um, 
about myself. And then I tried previously, I tried to do a blog about Brussels, but it was just, I just, it was just too broad a canvas, too broad a topic. It was really hard for me to sort of focus in on um, what exactly it is that I wanted to write about, what exactly it is that I wanted to say. Um, and blogging is hard. And if you don't, if you don't really, if you're not really fired up and passionate about the subject, you know, you just stop eventually. Right, it's like right. Podcasts or anything. If you don't really, if you're not really in it, then eventually it just fizzles out a little bit. And that's what happened to the two previous ones. Um, I started in 2017. There was sort of two parallel stimuluses for that. Uh, number one, I'd actually, I was halfway through a two-year beer sommelier course, which I'd signed up to do uh, in Dutch here in the city. There's, a, there's an organization that does, that does uh, they call it Zytolog, Zytology. So I was halfway through that. That was, um, I was, it was either 400 or 800 euros a year in tuition okay. fees. So I had to come out of that with something tangible to be able to say this was worth it. So it was a course, which was basically like, you know, the basics of brewing, the basing, basics of like sensory tasting and all of that sort of thing. Um, and the business of, of brewing, you know, if you want to set up a brewery and food, beer and food pairing, that sort of thing. Uh, so I was doing that and I was halfway through and I was trying to work out what am I going to do with that? And at the same time, I was, uh, I'd had my first child in 2014 and I'd had my second child in 2016. And we were, you know, right in the trenches of it. Uh, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. I think I remember reading somewhere, somebody saying that having two kids under the age of five or more than two is one of the most stressful experiences that a person can ever put themselves through. You yes. Know, and you're talking, you, you're, you're <laughs> acutely aware because you're <laughs> right in the middle of it as we have discussed. So yes, yeah, so whoever and, wrote that, I would like to, I'd like to nominate them for some awards because yes. And it's funny because, I mean, the brain is a very special thing because I can barely remember a lot of the worst right. moments of that. Yes. So I yes. have I have friends now who are get, getting pregnant or just having children. And, you know, I want to be able to give them advice, but I can't remember the horrors. I can just <laughs> I can I can vaguely sort of call back like the sleepless nights and falling asleep in meetings and all of that. Mm. But at so at that time, you know, parenthood, new parenthood, especially nowadays is quite is can be pretty all consuming. Um, there's a lot expected of you. Also, the fact that you know I live quite far away from my own um, family structure, so mm -hmm. right. all of my family is back in Ireland. We rely a lot on my on my wife's side of the family to help. Um, and I was finding finding that I was sort of losing myself a little bit in that. And I'd always wanted to write, and I had this beer course that I was doing, which I had decided to do because maybe I had some nebulous idea about getting into the beer industry or something like that. So the two of them kind of came together and I decided, right, well, this blog, this is going to work. I'm going to do it on beer. And it's, this is it. This is, this is it now or never. Like if I don't, if this doesn't work out for me, then, you know, what the hell, who the hell am I? What the hell right. am I going to do? I mean, that sounds quite apocalyptic, but at the same time, I was working in a job that I didn't really like. I mean, the story is probably familiar to every, I mean, every, half of the writers you ever hear, I was doing a dead end <laughs> job. And I want, I needed to create a release, a release and that's what I was doing. I was working in a job with lovely people, but the, the work was just, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, I needed a creative outlet. I was writing press releases and social media content, all, you know, professionally during the day, which was just stultifyingly dull. Um, and I felt like a blog was a good way for me to get myself out of that. Um, I put a huge amount of pressure. I mean, I think a lot of people do that when they start up you know, put a lot of pressure on themselves to make it work. 
And for me, I was like loading the pressure on because this was blog number three. Um, there, there also happened to be another quite successful Irish man living in Belgium who was writing about beer, who gazumped me by a couple of years. So I had, I had uh, Brendan Carney who writes yes. a thousand smack, um, you know, his, his shadow looming, looming to one side. <laughs> I had, you know, parenthood and all of this, all, all of the things that that dredges up inside of you and, you know, the, and, and all of that. And, and I, and yeah, long story short, I started the blog in um, July, 2017. And then uh, almost immediately I had, yeah, you could describe it as a, as a minor, nervous breakdown <laughs> because I had put so much pressure on myself to do this. Um, eventually I had to take six weeks off work because of a uh, culmination of various anxiety attacks <sighs> and chest, chest pains that I was obviously as a hypochondriac thinking, Oh no, what, what's going on? I can't breathe properly. So I had to take six, six, I think six, eight, six, eight weeks off work. Uh, once I'd launched the blog, because then my body was just like, Oh, <laughs> it's done now. He's done it. So, you know, now it's our turn to, to take our revenge. Um, but it was a really important, it was really important for me that, that it worked, that I was able to do it, that six months in, it was still going. Um, five years in now, this July, it's, it's still happening. Ultimately, I think it also spurred me to quit the job mm. that I was doing. Uh, once I came back from my sick leave um, after that summer, I went back only part-time. Ultimately, then I took some uh, parental leave in Belgium here. You can take leave when your kids are small. So I took six months off work um, full-time, both to take care of the kids while my wife was working, and then also to try and make the writing a success. Mm -hmm. And then once that was finished, I eventually went back to work, but I was just kicking my heels until I quit permanently and then went and uh, attempted to be a full-time freelance writer, which was short-lived. <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly identify with the sort of loss of loss of identity that comes with parenting. And, you know, for me, I was established in you know my professional career by the time I had kids sort of later in life. But, you know, whether it was the pandemic or just the parenthood, you you do lose part of yourself and because you mm -hmm. have to give that up in order to be kind of fully present to be, you know, to be a parent to a, ch to a child or to children. And especially where you have multiple, you, you just, you feel like everything just kind of goes, like you said, you know, you can't remember the earlier, earlier days, which is how they trick you into having the second one or the subsequent That's ones. Yeah. Uh, Cause then once, once you get back in it, you're, you can remember, you're like, ah, I remember why this, you know, I didn't remember not sleeping. I remember all this, but the lack, you know, the loss of professional identity, I certainly understand. And, and trying to start a business during that time or trying to start a new project to try to reclaim that, there's not a lot of energy reserve left to be able to, to devote to that. So I can certainly understand how your mental or physical health could, could, especially if you're taking it seriously, which I don't know that a lot of bloggers do, but that sort of speaks to I, I, sort of your character and sort of your, your drive here. But it's you know, good for you for being, being able to pull it off. Well, it's sort of that monomaniacal thing, isn't it? That, that um, you get so you just like I'm just going to do it, you know. And I, I mean, historically, I wouldn't be great at keeping things going, but this, I just hit it. I, I was lucky. I'd found, I'd found the subject that um, that had enough interest in me that I could sit down every two weeks and write. 1,500, 2,000 mm -hmm. articles. You know. And what or, was it about? What was it about beer in particular, or was it Belgian beer? I don't, I don't know. I think it was probably the nexus between Brussels and beer. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, it sounds kind of corny and, and sort of trite, but it was like trying to understand Brussels yeah. through its through its beer. And and also more more than through it, more than just like covering the scene, because I've never been like a very sceney kind of a person. It was also the history aspect of it that I really yeah. enjoyed because I studied history at university. You know, I love I've always loved history um, in school and at university and afterwards. So I was able to do that. And also the, the good thing about working with history is that the people are all dead. Yeah. You can't, <laughs> you can't, in, you don't have to interview them. Yes. So you don't. So for someone like me who suffers with a lot of like uh, social anxiety, I didn't have to, I didn't, unless I really wanted to, I didn't have to go out and be like, so this is your new brewery. Tell me about your brewery. What beers yeah. are you making and all that? Um, I could read, I could go and look for the sources online and there's a lot of stuff and there's more and more stuff online now. You know, I could go and I could read that. I could do my research. I could walk around the city and write about what I saw, which was great. That was like, that was perfect. And then obviously once you've been writing for a little while, you get a little bit more confident in your writing. You get a little bit more sort of like, okay, well now I can go and talk to whichever brewer, you know, that that's uh, that's interesting and you want to talk to them. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've noted about your writing is, as you said, it is not scene based. It is not really product based or, or even personality based, which so much of, you know, and blogging oftentimes is is very navel gazing, very, you know, introspective or, or self-reflective. Uh, your writing, as you said, it tends to be sort of rooted in something a little bit more substantial or, or you know, in one oper- you know, one case you were talking about the you know, tell me about the sort of genesis of the history of the Brussels Beer and 50 Objects project. Um, well, on the one hand, that's straight ripoff of the <laughs> yeah. uh, British Museum's the History of the World in 100 Objects. Um, yeah, as, as is all great freelance <laughs> writing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did acknowledge that. So Neil McGregor from the British Museum, you can't sue me if you're listening. Um, that was, um, that was, uh, I had come to a realization that it was increasingly difficult for me to do long form pieces um because they require as anybody who's ever written anything above 2000 words they require a lot of investment they require a lot of time and a lot of editing and i'm going to contradict myself in a minute because i'm going to say that writing 500 words is incredibly difficult yeah it uh, is <laughs> but on, at the same time i was i was realizing just from a personal and and mental health standpoint i couldn't put in the late hours you know maybe this was maybe this was because of the pandemic and mm-hmm just a sense of like parental burnout and everything like that. I couldn't put in the long hours doing that um, and keep doing it on a, on a publication schedule, which was at one point, you know, an article every two weeks, maybe three weeks. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to start stretching it out to an article every month mm-hmm. because I knew myself that if I did that, then maybe I would say, well, one month, okay, six weeks, okay, right, right. eight weeks. And then, you know, six months down the line you haven't written anything yeah and you feel bad about it from just for yourself i know when i'm not writing i i tend to get very itchy and stressed that i'm not doing it so i needed a project i needed a hook to do something i needed something where i could have a regular schedule with regularly scheduled content that i could plug into my week to say saturday morning draft one sunday morning draft two thursday evening draft three publication friday and, and I think I think that's great advice for for you know you often will have people asking you know how do I get into beer writing or how do I become a blogger or just you know curious about what you do and professionally speaking 
you know, especially where you're not on any kind of deadline, whether it's podcasting, and I can speak for my own, you know, this podcast <laughs> comes out not quite, quite as sporadically as, as, uh, as Matt Curtis's podcast does, um, you know, you may get three and three a day or, you know, none for three or four months, but it is difficult to stay on that schedule. And so I think it is good advice to, for, for, writers who are trying to get into that flow. And even for those of us who are myself included could benefit from that. Just the idea of trying to set some sort of a schedule, but not also you're going to do it three times a week, something unrealistic, because I agree. Once you start getting past your self conceived deadline, it, you know, what's the difference between five weeks and seven weeks, you know, at some point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it has, and as something, when you commit yourself to doing X number of articles within a, a defined period of time, and people start reading them and people start reacting to them, which yeah. fortunately I've had some positive feedback. Um, you have a self, the, 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 the commitment to do it is built in. Yeah. You know, it's self-perpetuating. Once you've done one, I, you probably can't really pull out. Well, this is me. You probably can't really pull out after 10. Say yeah. if you did 10 and you could <laughs> say, well, look, it didn't work out. You know, you, you, you've said 50, you're going to do 50 for me hitting 25 just before Christmas was a really important milestone because, mm-hmm. okay, I was able to say, well, I've done it now. I've we're halfway. The next, the next half is actually the easiest half because it's more modern, um, more contemporary stuff. So I took my two weeks break off of Christmas, started back again, was worried that I wouldn't be able to get back into the rhythm after the Christmas break. Um, but it looks like, you know, it's something that's once you get into it, once you get into the rhythm of writing and you know what you're, you know, it's, it's easier to pick it up. And the project is interesting because it isn't, you know, just product-based. It is, it, it's not um, something where we're talking about, you know, a particular Cantillon Lambic or, you know, this particular beer. It's, you know, you're talking, you know, the first one is, you know, Cantillon's uh, Cool Ship, but then it's also about old bottles and cartoons and even a piece of cheese. What is the story of the cheese? The cheese, well... Do I need to do I need to explain for anyone who's not familiar with this what it? I I, th- I think so because I, I I think it would be helpful because Belgian one of the great things about Belgian beer culture, uh, and I and I think for a lot of writers from beer writers from abroad and frankly just beer tourists, it there's a quaintness to the whole Belgian you know we for those of us who come from the States who everything ends up in a 16 ounce shaker pint at, you know, with, with, you know, I was just at a place yesterday that, you know, on my way back from New York that uh, served me a 16 ounces of Pilsner, Pilsner, what we call a stadium pour right to the, right to the lid, no foam Mm -hmm. and no, and it was a supposed to be a pretty good brewery, but uh, you know, in Belgium, that's why when we would go, we would be amazed at just the, just the, the presentation and the hospitality and the whole, the whole idea of trying to treat, and this is certainly not, true of every single establishment in the country, but in the places we would drink, they took great care to a level that we hadn't really experienced, even in the higher end places in the States. But there also are these weird quirks of Belgian drinking culture, whether it's um, having bolognese almost in every bar, or uh, as you put it, the, you know, these, these sort of cubes, it's not the cubes of cheese, Cheese um, with, the, with, yeah. with the celery salt celery and, salt yes. and the mustard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think I've ever had as much celery salt as I have had <laughs> in, in bars throughout Belgium, but what is the role of cheese and, and of this particular cheese? Well, I mean, the, the scope of the series is, as you said, it's specifically not this beer was brewed in this year. And this is why it's important for a large part, because pre 1880, 
I mean, records disappear and those beers don't exist and, and there's very little evidence of them. So it's more just a sort of mixture of history, places, things, paraphernalia. Beers will come up, um, locations and products, uh, products that are associated with the culture. So this cheese, um, etiquette, uh, which just means hard cheese in the local dialect. It's a cheese. It's it's not now it's it, you know, like a lot of cheeses, it can be an acquired taste. It's quite strong and salty. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it's used in, 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 in local beer cafes here, and it has been for a long time, is that uh, something called potekes, which is a mixture of this etiquette, which is a hard uh, sheep's cheese or goat's cheese, between cheese, shallots, chives, and lambic, blended together, and then served on really big slabs of brown bread, basically. And it's it's not something you can get in very many places anymore. Like you can get the base cheese in a couple of uh, specialized cheese shops, but there are still some cafes around town who will serve uh, potekes. Uh, often with a you know, if you're lucky, you can get then a glass of lambic to go alongside it. The same lambic that would have been made to to, to make the potekes. But it was just I just want I, in that particular in that particular entry in that particular instance, I was just trying to use something find something that wasn't specifically a beer to sort of evoke that brown beer cafe Mm -hmm. culture that is familiar to anyone who's been to Brussels, but is also familiar if you've been to Bruges or to Ghent, right. You know, it's sort of dark cafes with dusty floors and, you know, old people eating, as you said, (laughs) spaghetti bolognese or lasagna. How would you characterize you know, Brussels beer culture today. I, I, I have been going as I, as we talked about earlier for, you know, better part of two decades. And, you know, when I first went, I was drinking nothing but industrial, terrible lager. I'm sure, uh, did not, you know, miss plenty of opportunities to, to, to visit, you know, Cantillon or other places in their, you know, earlier days. But, and it wasn't until much later that I, that I had the, the, the classic beer experiences there. But, you know, you've been there a decade now. How have you seen it change? Or, and this will eventually lead into a question about trying to preserve culture versus accepting or adopting, you know, change into modernity. Uh, but for now, what is the, how would you characterize, you know, the Brussels beer scene and, and how you've seen it evolve uh, over the last decade? Well, your journey reflects mine a lot because obviously when I moved to the city, I was also drinking industrial beer or Duvel. Mm. Duvel was probably yep. the thing I was drinking the most. Um, but when I moved to Brussels in 2009, there was one brewery, um, yeah. Brasserie Canticum. By 2010, there were two uh, when Brasserie de la Seine, so we're talking commercial breweries, when Brasserie de la Seine opened in the city in December that year. Um, and since between 2010 and 2022, the numbers jumped to... <sighs> depending on how you define it 20 this year, which I, which I know in an American context for a city is not huge, but we're talking of a situation in which there was nothing. I mean, we're literally, I mean, people might find that astounding to hear that Brussels, the capital of Belgium, which is the capital of beer, you know, beer drinking in a lot of people's um, minds in Europe alongside Germany, maybe had one brewery and that one brewery survived Brasse Cantillon not on its beers for about two decades, but because it was also a museum. Right. Um, and they survived by the skin of their teeth. We were as close to going to zero breweries as we were going in the other direction. Um, but those two breweries have been very influential, not only for the fact of their existence, but 
um, they have supported a lot of beer, new beer cafes, people in the beer industry here in the city, uh, beer centric restaurants. A lot of the employees of those breweries have gone on to set up their own breweries. Um, and you sort of, if you were to do a family tree, there'd be a lot of interconnected lines between, between some of these. And, and then people, even people who haven't worked for either Cantillon or De La Seine have always sort of looked up to and worked with them as sort of godfathers or godparents in mm-hmm. helping, helping newer breweries to source materials or borrow crates or get bottles or go in together on certain projects like festivals or, or just even just being, a, being an ear to, 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 to listen for advice, that sort of thing. Um, so those two have been super, infra, uh, you know, hugely influential in, in the development of the beer city, of, of, the, of, the, beers, uh, of the city's beer scene. Um, somebody else who sort of came up around the same time would be Jean Humler from Muder Lambic. I think probably most beer drinkers who visited Brussels will have gone to one of the two Muder Lambics. Mm-hmm. Um, not long after I arrived in the city, actually, Muder Lambic Fontenas, which is the one in the center of town, yep. opened. And they would have worked quite closely together with, uh, with uh, Jean Vanois from Cantillon and Ivan uh, de Bats from De La Seine. Subsequently, uh, such is the way of things in Brussels, uh, they fell out with Brasserie de La Seine, but the relationship <laughs> is still strong with, uh, with, with Cantillon. Um, and then sort of mid, mid-decade, last decade, you start to see more breweries coming along. So people like Brussels Beer Project, uh, Brasserie Stummelings, you know, small projects, um, some of them slightly bigger than others. Um, and then I think oh, in the last three or four years, it's just, it's, I mean, it's, it sounds silly to think that it's hard for me to keep up, but, you know, not to keep banging on about being a parent. It's really hard to keep up. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> not only, not only on the new breweries that are coming out or keeping an ear to the ground, to find out who's opening new breweries, but also the, the, the frequency with which new beers are released now, like when right. back, back in the day, you know, not aging myself too much, you know, Brasserie de la Seine had a regular brewing schedule and they had their seasonal beers. You know, they, they put out a saison in the autumn. They put out their uh, Brussels calling in the spring, put out a Christmas beer at winter, and maybe they did some collaborations. Brussels Beer Project came along um, and they have a brewery in the center of town, which was a sort of experimental brewery. And they started putting out a beer a week, mm-hmm. you know, and now we have breweries. Uh, there's one down the road for me, um, La Source, they put out two or three beers a week. Right. Um, and it's just bang, 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 which is great. I mean, it speaks to a massive amount of energy in the scene, uh, which hasn't really been dimmed too much from the pa- by the pandemic. I mean, we had, I think, two new brewery openings last year. We'll have definitely two new brewery openings this year. And you speak to a lot of people in the industry, and they'll, you know, well, maybe one or two years ago, they would have been a bit more generous with how much more room there is for the market to expand, but they still think that there's an opportunity to expand. I mean, all of these breweries, they're unlikely, their beers are unlikely to escape the boundaries of Brussels. You know, Brasserie de la Seine has been the template for a lot of them, which was, you know, I think they're like 60% focused on Brussels, 30% focused on the rest of Belgium. And ten percent for export. Mm-hmm. Like the, these aren't your classical Belgian brewery stories, which are which so much in the last thirty years have all been about export-led growth. 
you know, we're brewing beers for China or the US. Right. Or, you know, Germany, France is a huge market. Um, so the brew the beers don't really escape. But that's but it it's um yeah, it's a really interesting time. I was very lucky. Brussels Beer City started in 2017, just as that sort of wave was starting to gather momentum. Um and in, in the wake of the breweries, there's been a lot of new beer, uh, a lot of new beer bars that have that have opened up. So the opportunity to drink good beer has expanded both local beer, but also imported beer. So we get a lot of beer from the US and a lot of beer from continental Europe. So it's 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 a really lively scene. Um, I think people who would have been here maybe a decade ago to come back now and to go into a local brown cafe here, you know, you're definitely going to see your Brasso della Sense. You might see some of the other breweries mm-hmm. too. You know, it's really it's it's it has really changed an awful lot. Malaman shares your passion for brewing and is equally passionate about helping brewers. With its hands-on sales and technical teams, a 24-7 internal discussion channel where the teams help each other answer technical questions, R&D research trials, and projects based on brewers' needs and feedback, Malaman is the perfect partner for your brewery. Go to lalamanbrewing.com for more information on how Lalaman's wild yeast and sour beer offerings can help your business statements, your comments just brought up a lot of different questions for me, but one of them is just um, covered a lot of different areas, but one of them is with the sort of, you know, development and of these new places, you know, what is the effect on, on some of the old existing, existing cafes and, and, and beer culture? Do you think that that is likely to be preserved or do you think that is more likely to become almost, uh, you know, a tourism based thing? Um, or just kind of relegated to, you know, almost like a Disney-like experience, or or can it can it maintain that tradition and maintain its 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 relevance uh, and without becoming something totally different? Because obviously, if these brown cafes start serving hazy style IPA or anything along those lines, even if they are made by Belgian brewers, there, you know, to me that would be a bit of a sad loss. Yeah, I think I think those two worlds live in parallel. Um, and you talk about the Disneyfication of the Belgian beer drinking experience. I think that's something that predates yeah, the rise of fair. beer scene here. I think, you know, there, there have always been, well, okay. There have always been the classic traditional tourist centric uh, cafes in Brussels. And I'm thinking a lot of anyone's ever been to the city of the bars that you go down a, a, an alleyway to get to and mm-hmm. um, they're hidden off of the streetscape or places yeah. like Mortsubit near the train station, those places. Um, and it was a question that came up during the pandemic and it's a good one. You know, what's the future of those places, but they have so much cultural cachet that they'll continue yeah. under new ownership. Most of them are owned by breweries at the end of the day anyway. So they act as a function of the, of, of whatever the brewery wants to do with them. The beers that will go into them will be those beers of that brewery. So if it's, it's a Duval brewery, you will see maybe some penetration from some of Duval's more crafty brands, but it'll probably more often than not stay like Duval, Achouf, some of the other beers. Um, there has, you do see a little crossover sometimes. And I think it's great because it shows a sort of enlightened management and a slightly freer hand some of the breweries give to some of the brown cafes. And there's one or two in town I can think of particularly where you on tap, it's Stella, Leffe, Hoogarden. But the bottle and the can list is a mixture of Belgian classics, Lambic, and then sort of modern Belgian. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't really settled on what, what to call it these days, but um, 
you know, so you can get your Brasserie de la Sense and your Brasserie Lermitages alongside a, a pinch of Stella, like a 25 centiliter glass of Stella that costs two euros. So that's, which, which I find great because it's the best of both worlds. Mm-hmm. And for me, th- those are the perfect places to go for a drink because I know if I want to, I can get something traditional, but I can also just see whatever is the beer of the month um, on the chalkboard and get that instead. One of the other things that you had referenced was the heavy influence of, of exporting project or exporting beers uh, by Belgian breweries. And I knew, I know that a lot of the sort of older classic traditional ones had heavily relied on sending beer, as you said, to, to other, other countries, whether it was the United States and, or China or France or the UK. Um, and it, it seemed, you know, for a while, and I've read plenty of interviews by some of these breweries with these brewers saying that that's really kind of what saved them during a time when their local market really didn't, didn't want anything to do with them or didn't really appreciate them or were going in a totally different direction. But I think in, there's also a sort of a reverse part of that. Whereas, you know, what we as American drinkers, and I can speak, you know, when we would see Cantillon and, you know, there was a while there where you could find it pretty regularly and then it completely dried up in the States uh, or in most of the States. Um, it, it heavily influenced, you know, American beer drinkers and American brewers, um, just the tradition of it and, and just the classic nature of it. But also there was a while there where we were also exporting American beer culture to Belgium. And we, we saw an influence um, throughout a variety of different breweries that were opening up. And this, a lot of this was in maybe the mid 2000s, early 2010 at the kind of the latest. Uh, but what sort of influence do you think you know, American craft brewers have held, have had on uh, the Belgian, you know, both brewing and beer scenes. Um, I think it's had a, had a big one, not to this. I mean, that's a sort of basic answer, but um, I'll speak about Brussels particularly because it's sort of sweet, generous. It's the biggest city in the country. It has, pro- it has a quite a young population um, more receptive maybe than other parts of mm-hmm. the country to that external influence. I know Joe Stang, who you've had on the podcast before, he's he's a great exponent of the theory that Belgian brewers are great at synthesizing ideas from abroad and making something new out of them mm-hmm. for the Belgian audience. And I think that's true. However, there's been maybe slightly less synthesis than previously. Yeah. <laughs> because some of the breweries in the beers that they're producing, but also in the in the in the business models that they've created would look very familiar probably to urban breweries in the US. And also, I think probably even more so in the UK. Um, so what I'm talking about here is, you know, tap rooms. Mm-hmm. The concept of a tap room up until very recently in Belgian beer is a very alien, right. foreign concept. I, if anyone's ever tried to visit, come to Belgium, <laughs> and like, I would like to visit a Belgian brewery. Can I do that? In America, I don't think that's an issue. I think right. you go in and there's tours. In Belgium, you have to be with a group of 15 people on the first Saturday of the month, and you have to speak <laughs> French or Dutch or English at these yeah. particular times, and it costs X amount of money, and you have to call ahead and book it. It's right. So that, that, that was generally the model. You know, Breweries are there to brew beer. Bars are there to serve beer. But now you have the, the, the brew pub or the taproom model, which is taken off hugely in Brussels now. There's, well... There's at least three. There's probably more than that. I can, as I said, I find it hard to keep out count. Where the beer is brewed and served on site, which is a big, I mean, it sounds silly, but that is a big innovation. Mm-hmm. But it's made these places destinations. It's also helped them as small businesses to be able to sell direct. I mean, the margins on that are obviously much better. Um, so I think more so than the beer, and obviously, yeah, we, we've, you know, 
the place is raining down with hazy IPAs. Yeah. I was talking to a brewer the other day, talking about doing a collaboration beer, and he was like, Oh yeah, we've got Talus on contract. So, you know, we'll you know, we'll we'll do we'll we'll hop whatever you want. We'll get the hops in, we'll make it hazy, we'll make it we'll make it west coast, we'll make whatever you want. Um <laughs> and they're comfortable. I mean, the brewers now, outside of the traditionalists, um, I mean Delacen aren't going to be using any kind of you know, they're not going to be putting out a hazy under their own label anyway. Yeah. Um, they're very fluid in 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 jumping from genre to genre. So they can do the Belgian stuff, like the Belgian pale ales. Mm-hmm. I think most breweries here would have a sort of Taras Bulba style light hoppy beer. They can also do the IPAs and increasingly they're interested in mixed fermentation. Some of them starting their own Lambic producing projects, others getting involved with, with wine, um, with the wine industry, with barrel aging, you know. So there's a sort of confidence there to, to, to mix them all together. And that's probably also something that you, looking to America, seeing that it's feasible for a brewery to brew more than one kind of type of beer, you know. When we talk about Brussels, inevitably, Cantillon is usually one of the first words out of the mouths of any American beer geek or, frankly, international beer geek. And also, you know, there is some understanding of Cantillon, you know, outside of just the hardcore beer geeks. But in, while the Van Waugh family is, is inevitably one of the, the great ones of Brussels beer, it, you have somebody you have referenced is Yvonne Debates, you know, who has almost risen to his own place in in the importance of, of Brussels beer, which is kind of kind of amazing for someone who has you know been there for a while now, but is not one of these founding fathers of of that scene or someone who has inherited a brewery or has that great history. But what? How would you explain to somebody outside of? Uh, maybe even the beer space or even in it, but doesn't, isn't that familiar? Who is Yvonne Debates and what is his role in modern Belgian beer? Yvonne Debates showed to a generation of beer curious Brussels residents that it was possible to open a a brewery and be successful. Um, So that's, I mean, that's fundamentally, I mean, that's only barely touching, you know, the iceberg. Right. Of Ivan, but that's essentially what he did. He laid, he he showed the way. And I mean, Ivan, he's got he's got great pedigree. So he worked, he did work at Cantillon before. He worked at Duranka, which in the 90s were sort of the John the Baptist John the Baptists of Brasserie de la Seine, mm-hmm. showing that assertively hoppy light yeah. beers could be successful in Belgium and elsewhere. Uh, he worked, you know, they, they brewed beers in the early days at Duranka. He brews it, he brewed at uh, Theory. Thierry in, in, in France, you know, that's his own tradition. Um, Ivan, is a, he's a sort of a philosopher brewer, which sounds, now I've just said it, sounds <laughs> very like I'm, like I'm brown nosing here, but it's, I mean, you know, he, he's, he's written books. He's, you know, he wrote a book with Joe, um, the guide to Brussels beer before they set up um, a Brussels beer cafes mm-hmm. before they set up the brewery. He's, he wrote a chapter on Cezanne's for the Phil Markowski book um, about, you know, farmhouse ales. He's a man who knows his history. Yeah. But also he's a man with a very clear vision um, that can make him sometimes difficult mm-hmm. um, because that vision is his and it is to be unadulterated. Um, but it's also, it has also worked for him. So the vision is very clear, you know, good ingredients, a clear identity of who we are and what we make. Um, up until quite recently, you know, small, independent, local. Now, 
since the pandemic, they've started delivering to a couple of supermarkets here, which was a big step for, for the brewery. Historically, they would have avoided that altogether. Um, and no bullshit. Yeah. I think, you know, that's it. And yeah, keep going. It's just kind of interesting, yeah, because it's um, the model that we're more familiar with in the States, is, you know, who I think is somewhat similar and they have, you know, long had business relationships is Dan Shelton of Shelton Brothers Importing here in Massachusetts. And, you know, the two of them, it, they're very interesting because they have sort of similar personalities in some respects and not in others. But that Avon is, it's not, I'm not sure if combative is the right word, but it's more, it just, it's sort of authoritative with a, you know, queer, queer base, substantial base of, of knowledge, but also unapologetic and unafraid to state it's not even opinion for them it, it's more a statement of fact even though it is technically an opinion you know oftentimes mm-hmm. yeah, but it's true um but he knows who he is and he knows right. what he wants to do and he he's not he doesn't have the time to be doing something he doesn't want to do yeah um that's it that's... and it's and it's, the perspective is it just it's it's fascinating to see the these types of sources and 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 they're endlessly interesting and you know it, I have not spent a lot of time with Yvonne, but I've spoken to him a few times and interviewed him and understand from others who he is. But it it just is somebody who I feel like you just never quite, I'll never quite get to know him. I'll never quite understand him in the way that, but he's endlessly fascinating. And I feel like you could just peel layers back for for as long as you as, as you could spend time doing it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've written about him. I've interviewed him. We've had conversations. I don't know him particularly well. And I don't want to paint him as an austere figure because he is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he, he, he enjoys life. He enjoys brewing beer. He still brews beer, you know, 20 years, 20 years after mm-hmm. they first set up the beer. It'll be their 20th anniversary since they first brewed Zinnabir this year. Um, so he still enjoys doing all of these things. And I don't, I think you'll be dragging him out. You, you know, you'll be taking him out in a coffin <laughs> before he, before he ever stops being a brewer. You know, he's always going to be a brewer, I think. And while we talk about, uh, you know, Cantillon Lambic as being sort of synonymous with Belgian beer, you know, there is this other beer, Terrace Bulba, that is almost like a, a it is it reached a, a level of acceptance as in, in the pantheon of great beers uh, with, you know, few, few detractors um, as perhaps like Sierra Nevada Pale Ale does here in the States. So what is it about Terrace Bulba? That's a good question. And it is a question that has, um, that I have sought to answer and failed. Um, I'm gonna be I'm gonna I'm gonna be transgressive here and say that Taras Bulba is not actually my favorite Brasserie de la Seine beer. Um, there is a article I wrote, oh, probably two years ago now for Pelican magazine about Zinnabier, and for mm-hmm. me, Zinnabier is the Brasserie de la Seine beer because it's a little bit rougher, a little bit more alcoholic, a little bit uh, a little less austere than um, than Taras Bulba, and 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 I enjoy that aspect of it um the uh, taras bulba is just uh, a well-conceived beer perfectly executed but i will say this i think its reputation is bigger outside of brussels than inside of brussels. interesting in 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 terms of general uh, we talk about general population i mean how many americans are drinking taras bulba um but i think you're if there's going to be if you go into a cafe and there's um brasso de la Seine on the bottle list and there's only one of them, it'll be Zinnabir. It won't be Taras Bulba. Mm-hmm. 
Interesting. Um, and I think that speaks to the Belgians' preference for slightly stronger beers than than light. But I mean, yeah, Terrace Bulba is just, you know, there's it has everything. The, the artwork is iconic as ever. You know, I think that was really the first, that was the second beer that they ever brewed. The first, the first adventure in, in, in sort of that comic book style artwork that they have obviously become quite famous for now. Um, and they just, yeah, st- almost straight out the gate. And it, it also speaks to Ivan's, you know, various different influences. Okay. He's Belgian and, you know, in Belgium, he will tell you this drinkability is key. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't want you to drink one. He wants you to drink seven or eight yes. in moderation. Uh, so Taras Bulba is drinkable. Um, Ivan, you know, he loves his noble hops. So he's he's down in Slovenia and in Germany on the hop farms, choosing his choosing his hops for the for the brewing season ahead, you know, every autumn. Uh, and it also speaks to his love of English beer. You know, anybody who's ever talked to Ivan for any length of time about what his influences are, you know, he loves cask ale. He loves that, you know, sessionable strength. Yeah. You know, hoppy pale beers. Um, Sussex, um, Harvey's best. Being, being the example he often reaches for as, a, as an example of a beer that he loves. So it kind of brings all those together in a, in a beer that isn't, isn't, you know, despite all of those influences, is something, you know, uniquely itself. In the past year, the beer industry has experienced a growing reckoning in several areas from racism and sexism. And as we talk, actually, you know, the BBC Scotland is airing a program about problems and poor culture at, at BrewDog, including with the company's founder, James Watt. What is your response you know, to what you've seen and how have you seen that play out in the local Belgian scene? Um, I think it's with everything. Belgium's five, 10 years behind the curve on these things. Um, Brussels, because it's quite an, and, and no beer scene is perfect. And I'm not, this isn't not like a, a whitewash of Brussels beer scene. Um, it's quite a progressive beer scene because it's quite young. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who are in it come actually from like the alternative music scene. Um, it's no, no secret to say they probably share left wing political sympathies. So there is, there's a natural sort of affinity for those questions on gender equality, equality, racial equality, racial equality is maybe a question that, more so than like issues with misogyny that isn't absolutely not on the agenda here. Mm-hmm. Um, not because it's not an issue, but it's just because it's one of those situations which they're just so unaware of it possibly being an issue Yeah, that it's not, that, that it's not an issue. People are, are sort of cognizant of. Um, and when it comes to gender and, and, and gender quality misogyny, you talk to anybody in, in the breweries here and they'll tell you of their experiences um, of inappropriate comments or inappropriate situations at, at beer festivals. There is, there, is a, uh, there is a sort of undercurrent of discussion about doing something about that. It has, as of yet, not manifested itself in a public expression of, of some kind of action or, or, or undertaking that wants to be done. Um, there, have, there were uh, Belgian contributors to um, Brian Allen's mm-hmm. um, work before the summer. So there were stories that came out in Belgium, no, stories that were not a surprise, I think, to anybody in the Belgian yeah. scene who would have read them. Um, the way the way Belgian beer approaches it, and to take something as banal as, you know, um, depictions of women on beer labels here. Yeah. It's pretty reg- it's pretty regressive. Um, pretty regressive. You know, 
there's an unwillingness to take it seriously as an issue. People would say, oh, it's just it's just a joke yeah. or it's just, a, you know, it's from our comic book tradition. And um, that's why we depict them in, you know, sexually explicit or sexually suggestive ways on, on labels. And there are some pretty egregious examples of that. And they also there's a, a lot of that comes from and this is not me like giving them a get out, but it's from a previous generation of brewers and business owners who just don't take these things seriously yeah. and never have. And unfortunately, I don't think ever, ever will. Now, I hope, as I was saying, that there are people who are working on this, you know, behind the scenes to a large extent. I mean, one of the country's most um, recognizable beer experts is Sophie van Rafflegem. She's a, uh, she's an author and she, she's a, a beer expert, which I think is great because she is, a, a, you know, the face of female participation in the Belgian brewing industry which still is quite a male one um, but it's becoming slightly less and things are changing but we're yet to sort of see um, the same kind of outpouring of public testimony that we did in the US and the UK yeah having said now having said that in in Brussels recently and I'll stop then um before Christmas there was uh, stories emerged not in the beer scene but in the bar scene of um, women being uh, drugged um being assaulted and having to deal with um inappropriate work workplaces in some of the bars in the city and that did bring out a lot of stories about mm-hmm. uh, unsafe workplaces um in inappropriate um behaviors by bar staff by by bouncers and all of that so that has come out and i think that sort of feeds into a broader reckoning that the country's having at the moment for a number of other reasons of news stories going through the the news cycle over the last 6 to 12 months about um, inappropriate um, and um, inappropriate behavior and sexual abuse and misogyny and uh, in the workplace and outside of the workplace. Brussels Beer City is coming up on its fifth anniversary. Um, what do you, any plans to celebrate? Any plans for future projects, especially once you get past the, you know, various other pieces of cheese and uh, accoutrements that you're going to write about? When is the podcast? When is this podcast going out? Uh, probably tomorrow, actually. Okay. Well, then you can have you can have yourself a world exclusive. Mm. Here we go. <laughs> so to celebrate to celebrate the, the the blog's birthday in July, I'm going to throw a small festival. I call it a festival. Now, that's a big word for what it is. It's essentially just a series of yeah. I know. Already talking myself down. Um, so under the sort of broad rubric of beer cult, uh, uh, celebration of beer and culture, I'm going to do a four day series of events, um, all around beer and culture. So beer and history, food, art, um, architecture, whatever, whatever the, the program is still coming together. Uh, but I thought it was a nice opportunity, you know, by July, 2022, we hope that we'll be living in a slightly more open summer than maybe in the previous two summers. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's just going to be a small celebration, basically an opportunity for me to celebrate Brussels Beer City's birthday, but also to celebrate you know, the people I've featured on the blog and worked with over the past five years. So we're going to be doing five collaboration beers with five local breweries featuring five people who have featured in articles on the blog over the last five years. Um, you can see a theme emerging here. I'm not very creative when it comes <laughs> to that. Uh, and if I can get my act together, I'll self-publish the series, um, History of Brussels Beer and 50 Objects to coincide with the launch 
of the festival in July. So, you know, we were talking about parental burnout and being exhausted <laughs> and not having any time for creative endeavors. But uh, for some reason or other, I found myself quite bored before Christmas and decided that I needed some extra work. Um, so I thought organizing a four day beer festival was a good way to keep myself active. Well, especially when you're surrounded by children's toys and screaming and yelling and, and trying to get, you know, kids in their, in their, in their beds and to get them to stay there, you need things to look forward to. So I look forward to hearing more about that and certainly getting more details out there, but Owen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great pleasure. Uh, I look forward to having beers with you in person sometime. Uh, and I hope those kids get to sleep and stay asleep tonight. Thanks, Andy. Take care of yourself. This has been Andy Crouch, and thanks for listening to the Beer Edge Podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to produce interesting podcasts and other content for you, our dear listeners. And this is where I ask you to give us a little hand. We've got some cool merch for sale at BeerEdge.com. Buy a shirt or a mug and help support independent journalism. And if you're itching for more beer content, check out John's podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, with new episodes every Wednesday. It's a good listen on your commute or if you just need to take a break. We're on the socials at The Beer Edge. And if you want to be on the show, or if you want to sponsor the show, or if you know the perfect guest, please drop me a line. My email is andy at beeredge.com, and my DMs are open everywhere at Beerscribe. And we're back with Molly Browning. Molly, can you tell us more about the benefits of bacteria fermenter souring? Bacteria fermenter souring offers a different range of flavors that are just different in the color paint box than uh, you see with Sour BC and Philly Sour. The bacteria offer ways where you can really dial in, particularly if you are doing a kettle sour, you can really dial in into a target uh, titratable acidity or pH. And how can Wallaman assist brewers in choosing the right sour beer product for their needs? So we have a team of experts, all of our technical salespeople, our technical salespeople, a lot of us, myself included, are ex-brewers. We still probably consider ourselves brewers. Um, you know, we do come from that world. So yeah, we're like happy to answer any questions. We offer a lot of resources on our website, but on our YouTube channel, we do, within the past year with COVID and everything, we really started to have some great just conversations with other experts in the brewing industries. Basically, if I don't know the answer, or I can find out who does pretty easily. For almost 50 years, Lalaman has been passionate about brewing and helping brewers. With decades of long-standing industry experience, an extensive support network, and strong technical expertise, Lalaman Brewing is positioned to help your brewery achieve its growth and quality goals. Beyond unparalleled global technical support and expertise, Lalaman offers an extensive range of products, services, and education. Whether you're a startup, a global leader in beer production, or anywhere in between, Lalaman has something for you. Contact Lalaman today for more information.